Hi, I'm Roger Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with David Frum. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum's exclusive analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas for The Hub. In Conversation with David Frum is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for more great insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with David Frum, for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. Last time we spoke, we discussed Donald Trump's indictment and what it told us about the future of Republican politics and American conservatism. This week, David took up those topics and more in a must-read new essay for The Atlantic entitled The Coming Biden Blowout. With a provocative title like that, I couldn't resist the temptation to ask him about it, including why he thinks Republicans are headed for an electoral disaster. David, thanks for joining us again, and congratulations on your essay. Thanks for having me back. You write that the Republican Party has various paths available to it in the context of the 2024 presidential election, and yet it seems poised to select the worst one, which is to renominate Donald Trump. Help our listeners and viewers understand his hold on the Republican Party. Why are base voters so dedicated to him in the face of compelling evidence that he's actually a drag on the party's popularity? Let's pull out the frame a little bit and start with the larger strategic situation of the Republican Party and its problems. Um, During the 1970s and 80s, the Republican Party was the larger of the two political parties in the United States. And it held that dominance because of its success on issues of inflation, crime, and foreign policy. Um, With the end of the Cold War and the big reductions in crime that took place in the 1990s, um, the Democrats became a much more competitive party. Um, The Republicans responded also by becoming more socially conservative than they had been. You have to be 36, 37 years old to have participated in even one presidential election where the Republicans got more of the vote than the Democrats. That was 2004. And you have to be 52, 53 to have participated in two such elections, because that takes you all the way back to 1988. So this is the weaker of the two parties. Trump drew... um, seemed in 2015 like a may, maybe a solution to this problem. Trump presented himself. He was the least religious um, nominee the Republicans had, had since maybe Bob Dole. Um, all those mistakes we would call the Bible, we would refer to chapters like 2 Corinthians in the Bible, were actually weirdly reassuring to a lot of less religious Republicans. Um, and he had an identity as a businessman, an accomplished person, a kind of, you know, Ross Perot, but um, who had done well with a lot of Republicans in the 90s. Okay, so then instead what happens is he's a maniac, he's toxic, um, he's influenced by the Russians, and he has a catastrophic presidency. There's not a day in his presidency where he hits even 50% in one reliable national poll. Of the, there's six elections from 2000 to 2020, 12 nominees. Trump's share of the vote ranks 10th and 11th out of 12. So he's not a popular candidate. But Trump does build this deep connection to the Republican base based on, well, at least he hates the people we hate. Uh, 
but it doesn't work. And then the disasters begin to follow. In 2018, so Trump finishes behind Hillary Clinton in the popular vote in 2016. He's able to sort of make up an explanation for that with the map showing all the counties that he got. 2018, he loses the House of Elections in the highest turnout election since before the First World War. 2020, he loses the presidency again. Um, 2021, he loses the Senate. And 2022, he installs a lot of candidates. And yes, Republicans do gain back the House of Representatives. That's a win. But his handpicked candidates all suffer disastrously. And if you look down the ballot, you see real trouble. Um, there are 99 state legislatures in the United States, two in most states, one in Nebraska. Normally, when the president is on the ballot, the out party picks up state legislatures. It's been a long time since that didn't happen. The Democrats, the party of the president in 2022, picked up four state legislatures. That has not happened since the Roosevelt administration. They won both houses in Michigan, and they won those races on the basis of the abortion issue. Um, they, uh, they have now had a series of other wins. They, they've just won a majority on the Wisconsin state Supreme Court. That means that's about, that was driven by abortion. But Wisconsin is the most gerrymandered state in the northern United States. Republicans hold, control the state with a minority of the vote. They're going to lose the ability to do that and lose control of that state. And there goes Trump's whole strategy. Meanwhile, the economy is surprisingly strong. The interest rates have not, uh, raises have not produced an, um, recession. Uh, employment continues to grow. Biden's presided over the steepest and biggest slide in unemployment ever. I don't know. Um, and Republicans have missed the chance to get rid of Trump and replace him with somebody more credible. And the leading one, one this is a long answer, the leading credible candidate, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, has damaged himself by turning himself from an effective governor into the general in the war on Disney. Yeah, there's so much there to unpack. Let me take up one line of analysis, if that's okay. One of the challenges for other Republicans vying for the presidency is that, as you say, David, Trump has cobbled together a set of unconventional political views. He's to the left of the Republican establishment on abortion, public spending, and foreign policy, and then to the right of it in other areas like, say, immigration. Abortion is an interesting case where his chief rival, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, has just signed into law a six-week ban on abortion, which is one of the most stringent in the country. And Trump, by contrast, has sought to find more moderate ground. What's influencing DeSantis on this? And what has enabled Trump to break with party orthodoxy on some of these issues and not face any backlash from party members? Does Trump, in effect, better understand the Republican Party than the party's own establishment? Yeah, that's such a, that is a really powerful question. So Abortion for a long time has been a highly theoretical dorm room kind of conversation that Republicans had one view, pro-lifers had one view, uh, Democrats, liberals, pro-choice people had a different view. Once the abortion decision was overturned, once Roe v. Wade was overturned and the states, at the end of the federal abortion right in states regained the power to regulate, suddenly Americans were confronted after a half century with the details of what does it mean in the modern era to try to enforce abortion bans. I mean, it requires a degree of surveillance of women that um, I don't think even many pro-life people signed up for. So in the state of Idaho, for example, they've now enacted a ban on underage girls leaving the state if they're pregnant. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So it, 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 you have to monitor people. You have to surveil people. You have to harass people. people women who have miscarriages have to prove to the state that they had an authentic miscarriage. Um, and all of this hedged by criminal penalties. And just imagine what it means 
for the woman who has lost a child she wanted. I mean, many of us have lived through this situation. You've wanted the child. She's, you know, maybe the pregnancy was difficult, that something goes wrong. And then here are the police. And you have to, this at this moment of pain, you have to prove to the police that you didn't murder the child you wanted. Um, it's unthinkable. It's, it's horrible. And that that is what is happening at the state level. So that's why it's so powerful. What Trump always understood was... Um, because Trump is such a liar himself, he's able to understand the role of bullshit in politics. That you take a stance, these are just words or, uh, that I'm putting in the air. I don't actually mean them to have any real world consequence. And that's what was true through a lot of the abortion debate. These, that for most people, these were not words that were meant to have real world consequences. But for some people, they were. And those some people now have the upper hand and people are experiencing the consequences. And boy, do they not like it. Before moving on to President Biden and the Democrats, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about Tucker Carlson in the context of this conversation. What does his popularity and now sacking say about the state of the American right? And what do you think Carlson does next? How will he influence the Republican presidential race? Well, we, all, we have to put co popularity here in context. There are 330 million people in the United States. On any given night, two and a half to three million of them were watching Fox prime time, and he was the top rated show. So that's a lot of people, and it, and it may, makes Fox very profitable. It has made Carlson very well paid. Uh, but that is not a political powerhouse. I mean, it seems that way because you can get people to um, an Iowa caucus. You can make an impact on the New Hampshire um, primary. You can flood the switchboards at Capitol Hill because most people most of the time never call Capitol Hill. But day, but when it comes to the real crunch of politics, we have to turn out, I mean, politics remains a broadcast, not a narrowcast business. Maybe it's the last industry in America that's about broadcast, not narrowcast. So it, one of the ways that the Republicans have destroyed themselves uh, is that they have allowed Fox to drive their agenda uh, in a way, I, I, what would be the equivalent? I mean, it, it would be I mean, you're taking a tiny, a part, an important part of your coalition, but a small part of the national conversation and letting it drive everything and not remembering all the normies are out there. And that's how you can have these things where Ron DeSantis will give speeches in which he says, I'm going to stop CRT and DEI and ESG and, and CBR and, and, and C, I'm now, uh, C, C, I can't, I keep calling it CBGB, Central Bank Digital Currency, but he uses the acronym. And unless you're watching Fox four hours a day, you don't even know what he's promised to do, never mind whether you should like it or not. I mean, the world is full of, meanwhile, Biden is saying, insulin, that was $700 a month, now it's 35. You like that? You're welcome. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our free weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub, Again, you can grab that exclusive complimentary email newsletter right now at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Yeah, let's take up President Biden. Is his relative popularity a reflection of his own track record, like some of the policies you, you've mentioned? Or should we understand it as more of a rejection of the Republicans? Biden has a, well, first, Biden is not super popular. He is in the 40s, um, which is 
not a, tr- a zone of trouble, but not a majority. He has been over 50% on some days, unlike Trump. But, you know, part because of the hyperpolarization, it's hard for a president to get his numbers too high up in the modern era. But here's what he's had going with him. Some of it is has just been the good luck of the amazing resilience of the American economy. Um, it came out of COVID um, with a lot of distortions that led to inflation. The central banks have been trying to squeeze out the uh, inflation by raising interest rates. People expected, many smart people expected a recession, um, and it hasn't materialized. And the, today we have more, jo- as you and I speak, there, there are more growth numbers out. They're down, but they're still positive. Um, and, uh, and the unemployment na- rate remains ex- exceedingly low, and job creation is strong. So he's had that going for him. He's also, just because of his age and biography, it's very hard to make him out to be an exotic or threatening person. I mean, Republicans try. This is a guy who's been on the scene forever. You sort of know what he is. Um, he's kind of garrulous. Um, maybe he's you know, not the most inspiring. But the idea that he's some kind of weirdo or flake or menace, um, h- hard to imagine. And, you know, and he's so much, he is, he remembers broadcast. He probably still watches news, CBS, ABC, NBC News. He's that person. And you often with him, you, you get a sense that he doesn't even, like, like some of the, his administration has been very forward leaning on transgender, which is a very cutting edge policy, quite among those who understand it, quite controversial and unpopular. It's pretty obvious Biden doesn't understand it. And he will, he will be asked about transgender rights and he will say, well, they love each other. Think, no, that's, that's not actually what this issue is about. <laughs> and like, clearly people are embarrassed to explain it to him or he doesn't retain it or something. <laughs> but he just is like the man from a different time. And that's both his greatest strength and his, his greatest weakness. I have a close centrist friend, David, who believes that the Biden administration isn't getting enough credit for the policy ambition it has set out with respect to science and technology and ensuring that America is the leader in the key sources of economic growth and dynamism into the future. What do you think of my friend's view that the Biden administration has arguably been transformational when it comes to key issues like science and technology? Look, if you're transformational on a key issue, you are not transformational. I mean, transformation means, you know, you gotta say, wow, I mean, what they have done for um, barcode readers is just uh, that that or the chip and th- th- those are niche issues and and yeah I'm sure they've made they've made a lot of commitments and investment but overall um, the Biden administration has been about reassurance rather than transformational change and Biden got into trouble because I mean he passed a lot of spending bills and at the beginning of his administration and arguably made the inflation even worse than it otherwise would have been and I think one of the um, uh, that one of the things that has been a problem is to, to dial it back and to uh, um, reduce some of those ambitions. That's going to be key to his success. If he had acted, in, if he had been able to act in 23, 24, as strongly as he acted in 21, 22, he might not be in such good shape. But he, Biden has a good sense of the rhythms. I did my big things. Maybe I overdid it. There's probably a part of him that thinks he did, but I did my big things. Then the Republicans took the House. Now we go into digestion mode. Um, and now I focus on foreign policy. And where his, he's, his, where, that's where he, I think he's scoring his biggest success is after um, the humiliation of what happened in Afghanistan in the summer of 21, that he has in Ukraine put together the elements of, with others, I mean, this is not all his own doing, not all America's doing, but with partners, um, 
a defense of Ukraine, a reinforcement of Ukraine that promises so to deliver such important results. You mentioned the strength of the American economy. Let me take that issue up. The Economist magazine recently published a report that showed for all of the negativity about American politics and the country's challenges with guns and income inequality and political polarization, its economy remains by far the world's most innovative and dynamic and richest. What do you think explains the extraordinary resiliency of the American economy? All the things you said, but there's something else, and I think that a debate that people are having really goes to what's going on. One of the things you hear a, a lot of people talking about is, will the dollar be replaced as, uh, as uh, the world's reserve currency? And the, the, uh, China's economy is so big, um, will people uh, use the Chinese currency instead? And the answer to this question maybe takes us to the core of what you were just talking about. So uh, if you use a currency for transactions, um, then, you know, the Chinese currency is as convenient. You want, you want to buy a bunch of toys, um, you know, you convert your, whatever, your, your Swedish kroner uh, into Chinese currency and you buy your load of Chinese toys and you bring them back to Sweden and put them in the department store. But at any given time, what currency is most used for, most of the dollars in the world are not being used for transactions. They're being used as to hold assets. Um, and so all that, if the Chinese state wants to have its currency used as an asset, rather than just for transactions. Very simple what they have to do. Um, they have to build a 230 year, repu uh, year reputation for honesty and trust and integrity, um, a proof that assets held in that country's currency and under that country's jurisdiction are safe, um, that people, uh, that, that the courts can be trusted. That's all they have to do. A, two, a 230 year tradition of honest courts, that's all it takes. So what the United States has going for it is, is Alexander Hamilton's core insight when he paid back debt at 100 cents on the dollar, that public credit is the most precious asset a country can have. And public credit is based on um, public trust and year after year, even when it's inconvenient. So um, people want to hold assets in the United States. So they want to hold assets under American jurisdiction. They trust the dollar and for reasons. And then the size of the economy, I mean, they trust the Swiss franc too, but how big is Switzerland? The United States is the biggest economy with this legacy of, of historical trust. That's a great answer. Let's wrap up where we started. If the Republican Party is indeed on a collision course to an electoral disaster, is there anyone, including among the party's uh, younger legislators, who you think can pick up the pieces and start to rebuild a political party that can present a compelling political vision for the country? Well, the Republican Party has had very hard time learning from its mistakes. People can articulate mistakes, but the party for institutional reasons can't learn. The lessons here are not just for Americans, but they are for conservative parties worldwide. And the question is, can other parties in other places learn? Warren Buffett had, has a great line, it's good to learn from experience, but it's even better to learn from other people's experience. So, so there, there's a, across the Anglosphere, across the developed world, can other right or center parties look at what's happening with Republicans and say, you know what, because of these new kinds of drugs, that are spreading around the world, we have new problems of instability and disorder in our cities. Um, people don't want us to be um, draconian, but they want to be able to walk at night with safety. They want women and children to feel secure in where they live. Um, you know, inflation does have to be brought down, and the pace of government spending during COVID 
um, cannot continue and has to be reduced. Levels of public debt have to be brought down with interest rates higher. Um, there are, uh, and we have to develop, we have to spend more in defense and uh, work more closely with partners and allies to make sure that we have procurement systems that work. We have a lot of ammunition to replace. We have a lot of systems to replace. There are things for right, there is work for right of center parties to do. And the biggest and most conspicuous of those parties is doing it wrong. Uh, let everybody else learn from other people's experience. Do not repeat the Republican mistake in Canada, in Britain, in Australia, in Germany, in France. Um, do things differently and let the Republicans be a warning, but also a guide. That's a great insight. And, and these conversations are always a guide every two weeks. I want to thank you, David Frum, for joining me for this conversation. And I look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to In Conversation with David Frum, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews, so please leave us one. And a friendly reminder that you can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada, or go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm The Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, The Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atter-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. <laughs>